Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas and stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium and in any genre. We hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life, man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew goes to the movies. We're looking at what happens when our favorite books are adapted for the big screen, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Over the course of 10 episodes, we'll be discussing the similarities and differences between the two mediums and what distinguishes a successful adaptation from a real stinker. So grab some popcorn and enjoy the show. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to yet another episode of Bibliophiles. It is a joy, nay, a pleasure to see all of your smiling faces. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. Good. Doing really well. Great. I have an icebreaker question for you. I love when you do that. It's not very deep this time. What is your favorite going to the movies snack? Mm. What's your theater snack of choice? Peanut butter M&M's. Ooh. Okay. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. It's the ones that come in the white box and they're long. They look like long pills, but they're red and they're... Um, oh, uh, hot tamales. Hot tamales. There you go. Hot, hot tamales. tamales. <laughs> it's been a long time since I did the movies. Hot tamales, good and plenty, that kind of thing. Not, not good and plenty. Hot tamales. Gotta be hot tamales. Okay. <laughs> hot tamales. A giant bucket of very salty, very buttery movie theater popcorn, and then I'm going to go put more butter on it. Yeah, I'm with you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. My favorite is a large, like, and I'm talking large enough that you can't drink the whole thing, root beer. Hmm. But that is a hazard. Yes, because then you have to get up in the middle of the yes. movie. You have to go potty at the climactic moment, <laughs> right in the middle of the important part. I always leave a movie with a bad attitude because I got to pee so bad. <laughs> I have seen the new Timothy Chalamet Dune three times, and I have had to pee at the exact same moment. Of all I am all a witness to two of those three this? times. Oh my goodness. Okay, but that movie is long, though. Man, they go on a long time in that movie. Oh my goodness. Well, speaking of long, long movies, and this is a funny thing. I mean, it seems like to to me, the shorter the book you're trying adapt to adapt to the film, the easier it would be to wrap it all up. Right? If you're if you're doing Lord of the Rings, it makes sense that you ended up with three, three and a half hour features, because that's a really long book. But the great Gatsby, on the other hand, seems like it takes about two hours to read out loud. Maybe it should take about that long to put on the screen. However, both of the extant adaptations that I am aware of are also really, really long. And that's the topic of our discussion for today. Dad, you're in the hot seat discussing The Great Gatsby. And I understand you've seen both of the adaptations that exist. Yeah, actually, there are more than just the two. There's an Alan Ladd one from before the 1970s that I have never seen. But the two that I was that I have seen and have some thoughts about are the 1974 version starring Robert Redford and Mia Farrow as Gatsby and Daisy Buchanan, respectively, directed by Jack Clayton and with music by Nelson Riddle. And then the 2013 version, directed by Baz Luhrmann, with Leonardo DiCaprio in the title role and Carrie Mulligan playing Daisy. A couple of great casts. Yeah, the casts were great. And and I thought that the two, watching the two for purposes of this discussion was really a fun exercise because it challenged some of my kind of old saw-type assumptions and, and pronouncements about works of literature being made into movies. Mm. 
in some fun what ways. What are some of those? Hit, hit, hit us with some well, of the assumptions you went in with. The obvious one is that literature is great and cinema – to, to, pre, to present a cinematic version of a great work of literature, it's necessary to hold up as the cardinal virtue, faithfulness to the text of the work of literature. And even, I would have said, even lengthy quotations verbatim from the text, either in the mouths of characters. <laughs> the script should be the same. <laughs> yes. Right. Or in a, in a narrative voiceover as part of the soundtrack, the, the immortal prose of the great author should provide the the backbone of the script. And I still think that that is a, that is potentially a good, but in these two movies, what we have is a situation where the lesser of the two movies in my estimation is more faithful to the no verbatim text of the novel. Hmm. That is fascinating. So it goes back to this this conversation that we've been having about the um, the tension between reproducing a novel on screen or being quote unquote in conversation with a novel on screen. And Emily, I think you've mentioned that in one of our previous episodes, right? What's the director trying to do? And I would argue that the in the 1974 version, Jack Clayton is trying to reproduce as faithfully as possible the novel in his own. Way he's supposed to, he's trying to give his own reading, Fitzgerald, without interjecting too much of his own conversation about what Fitzgerald might be saying. But I would also argue that Baz Luhrmann is doing the very same thing in his own voice, in his own day and age. I would say that both of them appear to be trying to explain Fitzgerald's original and to be as faithful as possible to what they think Fitzgerald was trying to say back in 1925. And you, you gotta think, you gotta think about this for a second. Why would they try and do anything else? I mean, the truth is, well, good the Great point. Gatsby <laughs> could be the perfect 20th century novel. Not only is it perfect in form, not only is it perfect in execution, not only is it uh, just pristine beauty, but I think it's still as relevant today as it ever was. I think it was just as relevant in 2013 as it was in 1925. It was just as relevant yeah. in 1974 as in mm -hmm. 1925. In other words, there isn't any, any reason to make a movie of The Great Gatsby, and I'm sure Clayton and Lerman would agree on this, except to, to speak it to your own Generation. generation, yeah, right, right. But the thing to say is what Fitzgerald was trying to say to his. So the question then, if they're both, if if I've got them both in the category of faithful reproductions, the question is why does one of them succeed and the other one fail? Because that's what I think really happened. I think we've got a a good cinematic adaptation of literature in in Baz Luhrmann's thir 2013 version, it's and we've got Luhrmann, a bad one. Like in Clayton's 1974 version. A bad one. You, you said something to me after you watched that first one um, that contradicts that. Well, uh, let me explain <laughs> what I mean. I, I don't, I, I, I appreciate the 1974 version and I think there are things about it that are, that are praiseworthy, but I don't think it works as well. I think it's, it's the lesser movie. It's the weak, the weaker movie. So it's not a bad movie. It's just not as good. Yeah. I'm, well, I mean, I don't know how you would define that. It's a, it was a commercial flop. It was a critical flop. Made no, no money in the box office. Nobody says it was great. Do you, um, what I go ahead just to go ahead, interject Nick. a little, a little humor here. Our aged grandmother, your mom, 
dad, (laughs) told me this morning that the reason that the Robert Redford one was a flop in her memory is that Robert Redford is supposed to be a hunk and he does not die. That's not what Robert Redford does. And everyone was so angry in her generation that Robert Redford was not going to be the successful hero of the end, but in fact was going to die that they flopped. Yeah, the way I remember her saying, I remember this wow. from my own childhood. She, yeah. she said, Robert Redford can't play a loser. That's not how this movies are supposed to go. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. In other words, in other words, not to put too fine a point on it, the reason the movie flopped is because that entire generation missed the point of The Great Gatsby. Well, we had a great fisticuffs conversation about it, Grandma, me and I, this morning. And I said, so in other words, it worked. I mean, the Gatsby character actually is supposed to be this tragic hero who who you're you're you know railing against the skies when he dies at the end so wasn't that the point she didn't see she didn't see my point of view no wow (laughs) (laughs) well i think there might be more to it than that but but there is an issue of casting right which doesn't exist of course for the novel and, and it gives clayton on the one hand and lerman on the other hand a chance to either succeed or fail and i think that clayton failed and lerman succeeded and, you know, this isn't necessarily a literary conversation, except tangentially, it's a, it's a, it's a conversation about movies and about casting in particular right. and about movie stars in particular. Right. But it's linked to a literary conversation that I want to suggest. And Hit it me. is this Robert Redford and Leonardo DiCaprio are both iconic face of their generation movie stars. Absolutely. And as the director of casting, you can't put either one of those actors in the movie as Nick Carraway. Mm-hmm. That's an, fair. Yes. That will not work. The, mo- yeah. the yep. producer won't pay for it, right? The audience won't come to see it. The actor that you've got to play Gatsby next to it is probably not going to take the role. It's a lose-lose all around, right? For Robert Redford to be Nick Carraway or for Leonardo DiCaprio to be Nick Carraway. However... Redford in that situation is then stuck in the 1974 version of the movie playing a minor character because it turns out that in the Jack Clayton version in 1974, Nick Carraway is very clearly the protagonist Hmm. for a couple different reasons that I want to kind of flesh out and see what you guys think of. So for this reason, 2013 version, Lerman's version works better because while Nick Carraway is the main character and the narrator, Jay Gatsby is clearly the protagonist of the story. It's about Leonardo DiCaprio's character. And so his star power, his prodigious acting chops, his subtlety, his ability to to protrude an inner life out onto the screen mm-hmm. are given full reign to, to fill the role in the movie that they're supposed to fill, which is main topic, main subject, uh, center of all attention. And and you're, the distinction you're drawing is between protagonist in the way that the story is set up and main character narrator, right? Yeah. So there was a conversation going on between the two directors about who the real protagonist of the story is. That's what I think. That's cool. that's the, the thing I'm getting to. In the 1974 version, the protagonist and the main character are the same person. Mm-hmm. It's a story about Nick Carraway. And we've actually given this reading to the novel on occasion when we teach it because the Nick Carraway story is profound 
and, yeah. And, yeah. and moving, right? And his, his decision to go east as a young man, his growing disillusionment with how things go in the east and his final rejection of the whole life and his return back to home where you can live in a house that has your name on it and everybody knows you, right? Right, right. And in that story, Jay Gatsby is an object lesson. He's what's right and what's wrong about the decadent East. But if Nick Carraway is both main character and protagonist, and it's really a story about him coming to this realization, then Gatsby is, as an object lesson, viewable only from the outside. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the fact that the story happens in narration takes the forefront. And Gatsby's own lines in the novel become nothing more than just examples of what Nick is saying to us about him. Hmm. And so hmm. he's one step removed, Gatsby is, as a character. He's an object lesson. He's he's not cardboard because he's a pretty dramatic object lesson. But he Well, and the plot takes care of that, right? I mean right. the things that happen are really dramatic. Right. And I think what, what Clayton did by by deciding on Nick as his protagonist and telling the story from Nick's perspective is he had Redford play Gatsby as a minor character, as an object lesson, as a glorious, beautiful, hunky, um, <laughs> glittery. special, glittery suit wearing <laughs> object lesson. Yeah. And so you're all, saying he buried the lead. He buried the lead, right? All we have to go on for, for learning about, about what makes Jay Gatsby tick is Nick's voiceover. And so there are big chunks of the novel being read by Sam Waterston as Nick Carraway describing why Gatsby does the things he does. And so uh, this is the perfect object lesson. On the one hand, it's textually very, very faithful. We get big slabs of the novel, Mm -hmm. but it's not doing anything for us as a movie by allowing Robert Redford, the great Robert Redford to sweep us away cinematically. And so the life is all out of it. It's, 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 it's lifeless. That is amazing. Yeah, it is. Because on the other hand, we I literally mentioned, Ian, that Tommy McGuire is a fantastic Nick because he simultaneously can command the screen while also being completely see-through. Yeah, and, and, well, when- and also kind of forgettable. I mean, sorry, Toby, if you hear this. I love you. You're <laughs> wonderful. Your, your Spider-Man will forever be the, the very beginning of my superhero obsession. However, and tell everyone about bibliophiles. Yeah, and tell everyone about the show. Please, God, if you are hearing this, the next time you get in front of somebody, mention bibliophiles. You know, I, I think Toby Maguire is kind of forgettable in the role. It's not that he doesn't do it justice. It's just that the camera's trained on Leo, which I didn't, I didn't even think about that, Dad. That contrast is really stark. Well, I was going to say that I didn't think that Toby Maguire was a good choice for Nick Carraway because, at least if you're being somewhat true to the story, Nick Carraway is not a wholesome young man. Okay, so we're getting okay. Spider Man can't put play a and I'm a wholesome young man. I'm sorry, <laughs> that's great. No, put a pin in that because I want to come back. I want to talk more about the about the Lerman version, but I want to let Dad finish his point. So mm-hmm. draw draw the contrast for us now. You, you talked about the seventy four reason and why it fails. Why does the Baz Lerman version get it right? How does it succeed? I think there's a, a literary assumption. I'm, I'm putting words in Lerman's mouth, of course, but a literary assumption that the protagonist. And the main character of the story are two different people. That this is the story of Jay Gatsby and his impossible dream told through the eyes and the, and the next door experience of Nick, the, the narrator. And so everything is, everything is, is brought to us by Nick personally, but it's not about Nick. It's about Gatsby. 
And we even have an additional, there's some additional material that Lerman constructs for us. He gives the story of frame, right? Which is Nick Carraway in a sanatorium trying to get his head on right and dealing with his <laughs> trying his to get over morbid alcoholism, right? his yeah. morbid alcoholism, yeah. right. By, by working it through, by writing a novel, right. Which isn't not a totally unfaithful to the novel, definitely in the spirit of it, but it's an additional piece that at the same time, it reinforces our idea that Nick is the main character of the story it begins and ends with Nick, but he doesn't get in the way as the protagonist. This is very clearly the story of Jay Gatsby. And so as Nick observes, as he comments, as he narrates, as he feels the effect of Gatsby's career, that is all in service to Jay Gatsby's own inner life being central and available to the viewer via more than just narration. And so we actually get Leonardo DiCaprio gets the chance to communicate to us directly about how Gatsby is doing, what he's thinking, what makes him tick. And so his, his, incredible gifts as an actor are set loose. And, um, and we watch his story too. So for example, in the climactic scene at the Plaza hotel, when, when um, Fitzgerald's text reads Gatsby at that moment looked as if he was going to kill a man, mm-hmm. right? The, the look on DiCaprio's face and the way that his jowls are shaking mm-hmm. and the, the fury that's coming out of his eyes, there's nothing like that in Redford's version at all. And it's not that Redford wasn't capable of it. Surely he was. He was as, he was as great an actor as DiCaprio, but I don't think he was allowed by the directorial decisions and the literary decisions that were being made in 1974. But that scene in the Plaza Hotel is really kind of symbolic of how DiCaprio plays the whole thing. He plays it exactly the way you imagine Gatsby uh, being motivated. Yeah. And we don't take Nick's word for it. We see him do it firsthand. We witness right along with Nick. Right. Mm-hmm. We're in Nick's shoes witnessing Gatsby doing his thing. We're not hearing it secondhand from Nick. That is fascinating. Don't you think that the way that Baz Luhrmann did it, you lose the element of the unreliable narrator a little bit. That is a really good issue. And I, I, yeah. I want to come to that. I have one more thing I wanted to throw out for conversation about this point, but then I think the reliable narrator issue is really worth talking about. But worth. another little example, a symbol of what I'm ta- what I'm um, trying to flesh out about this decision about protagonist and main character it has to do with the scenes that are left out of these two movies that are that are in the novel and the scenes that are included. And there's this pair of scenes that one movie leaves out scene A and puts in scene B and the other movie does it exactly the opposite way that I think is really telling. And the two scenes are these, the Dan Cody history reveal. Oh yeah. Yeah. Where we find out about, about Gatsby's childhood and his coming of age under Dan Cody. And the last scene between Nick and Tom Buchanan where Tom and Daisy are, are leaving town. Mm-hmm. Yep. The 1974 version leaves out the Dan Cody episode altogether and gives us the Tom Buchanan getaway scene. If you think about it for a minute, since Nick Carraway is the protagonist and main character of that movie, the Dan Cody scene is really not essential. Hmm. It's enough for Nick Carraway to realize that he came from humble beginnings, which is all we really get in the 1974 version. But the Tom uh, Buchanan getaway scene is critical. Yep. 
because it's the part where Nick realizes and makes a final judgment on Tom and Daisy being that kind of person. They're that a are rotten gonna, crowd. Yeah. They're a rotten crowd. Exactly. So the, the leaving out of the one scene and the, and the inclusion of the other is critical if Nick Carraway is both protagonist and main character. But if you look up at the 2013 version, it's exactly reversed. The Dan Cody episode is more or less central to the reveal, um, of Leonardo DiCaprio's character and even gets an extra scene, um, attributed to it. Yeah. Lerman has the screenwriter write another, an extra scene where he's, where Gatsby is fixing his yellow car and he's revealing, he's doing a confessional mm -hmm. to Nick Carraway. And actually when mom and I were watching this movie, she turned to me and said, that's not in the novel. No. Yeah. It's not in the novel, but what it is, is it's in the spirit of the Dan Cody episode, which is absolutely critical if Jay Gatsby is the protagonist, right? On the other hand, right. the Tom Buchanan scene is left out and the Nick, Nick turning his back on Tom and Daisy and saying there were that kind of people doesn't get treated at all. It's not necessary. It's if, voiceover. It happens in voiceover instead. Actually. Yeah. yeah. Well, it is there in the, in the Baz Luhrmann one because it's a phone call, I was right? I say, I remember Carrie Mulligan taking her daughter's hand and, and the butler answers the phone and yes. lets them leave. Right. But it is, but it's not, it's, it's dramatically shortened and abbreviated in comparison to the novel. Well, I actually, I'm talking about the scene in where they, where he meets Tom out in the street. Oh, and, yes. Right. Oh, okay. Where, where he yep. meets Tom in out, front of the jewelers out or something. in front of the jewelry store. And then they go in to buy a, to buy a diamond necklace or whatever it is. Remember that? Mm -hmm. yeah. And Tom reveals that, that he actually, he put Wilson on Gatsby's case when Wilson came and yep. said who was driving the car. That scene is left out. And I actually saw an interview with Baz Luhrmann where he said, you know, we filmed it. We filmed the scene. And then the interview the I was watching it on TV somewhere, the interview cut to the actual footage of the scene shot by Baz Luhrmann with Tobey Maguire and the wonderful Australian actor whose name I just forgot playing oh, yeah. Tom Buchanan. <laughs> and they, they shot the scene, but he, he left it out. And I think the reason is that, uh, it wasn't necessary because it's Jay Gatsby's story. It's the Leonardo DiCaprio character's story. So anyway, those two, those two, that pair of scenes sort of is a, is kind of a, an object lesson of what I was, I was trying to say. That is so great. I, I think I'm, I think I might agree with you about that. I mean, having not seen the 1974 version, but the, the gloss that that gives to the Baz Luhrmann version makes a ton of sense to me. Emily and I rewatched it to prepare for today's discussion and we also came down on a, on a well a debate of sorts about Lerman's reading, and if it is ultimately if he gets everybody right, I guess is the is the question. And it sounds like Mom's on about that too with the reliable narrator situation. I think she is. Yeah, and Miss Miss, you should you should ch chime in here on that issue of reliable narrator. Well, I just think that in the story in the in the Fitzgerald book in the novel, um, Nick Carraway is an unreliable narrator from the outset. He's, he is, in a real sense, just as despicable as the rest of the people he's running around with. <laughs> you know, there are all kinds of insinuations about it's, him. It's supposed to be humorous and ironic when he says, I refuse to pass judgment on anyone, yes. because he then spends the rest of the novel doing just that, Absolutely. Right? And um, on a lot of other things, too. <laughs> Participating as well as judging, Yeah. And all the degradation. So I, I had a hard time believing the Tobey Maguire casting well, of that. Oh, just because Tobey Maguire is, is more clean scrub yeah, looking? Yeah, he didn't really work for me because he was such a wholesome guy. 
he, well, he was Spider Man and then he was Seabiscuit's jockey, and I don't think right. anyone has ever seen him since. Seabiscuit's <laughs> jockey can't play it, Carol. That's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. And in Lerman's take on this, it was a very sympathetic portrayal of Nick Carraway. He brought Gatsby to the surface, right? And all of the, the degradation that happens with, with Nick Carraway, his participation in that is kind of unwilling. He's just kind of drug along and he's corrupted by these people to some extent. But then he says, I've had enough, you know, and kind of walks away. And it's not that there's nothing of that sort in the novel, but right. it's not nearly as strong in the novel. I would He's, agree with that. Okay, so I, I can see what I, you're yeah, saying, Emily, but what I appreciate about the Tobey Maguire reading is that Nick Carraway is from the Midwest, and there's this particular kind of of boy that comes out of the Midwest, and I think that it's embodied by Tobey Maguire. And it's not that that doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't that he couldn't have participated in the degradation. I do think that there is there this scene where he's partying in the hotel with Tom Buchanan. I, I turned to Ian and said, you can't convince me that Toby McGuire is drunk or, you know, on drugs. He nope. looks, he looks completely innocent, no, but um, <laughs> he just yeah. has that kind of face, right? It's but the face the character <laughs> is that he's supposed to be a representative of the West. And in the end, he does end up going back into the West in search of something that he's probably not going to find. That's kind of the whole point. But there is this idea that, that he's from the heartland, right? Right. So the casting choice makes sense to you. In that uh, regard. From that perspective, yeah. yeah. So Sam Waterston in the 1974 version uh, is every bit as boyish looking and and fresh faced and innocent looking as Tobey Maguire, but he looks about ten years older. Mm-hmm. And mm. I wonder if that is maybe a bet would have been a better casting choice. Not that I mean Waterston was by far too old in 2013, but right. Um, he he actually <laughs> had a. He had a stance from which he could deliver judgments that was maybe a little easier to to swallow. Mm-hmm. Um, huh. But I don't know. But this is this issue of him uh, of the fundamental suspicion we're supposed to have of Nick Carraway when he says, "I've always learned not to reserve." You know, I've learned My to reserve judgment. Said, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how you would. Um, I don't know how you would render that on screen any better well, than Lurman does it by starting out with giving us a vision of, of Nick Carraway in a rehab center. In an alcohol recovery yeah. center. So there's, there's one thing that, that Lerman does it. I think, I think the frame was perfect. Uh, that That's what defends Carraway's casting for me is that he starts out in an insane asylum or a, or a rehab house for getting dry yeah, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And then he, and then he ends there as well. I think that that helped for me. But then also he reorients two scenes. And I need to go back to the novel and figure out what they act, what the original was. But there's a moment when he says, that was the last night I saw Gatsby. And they have a, an interaction where he says, you're worth the whole lot of them. They're a yeah, rotten right. crowd. Mm-hmm. Right? Climactic moment and of the then, story. And then the whole scene with the washing of the, uh, of the car and the Dan Cody narrative happens after that in the, in the Lerman film. There, there, and I remember thinking at the time, well, I thought that was supposed to be the last night you saw him. And now we're getting more story of the two of you hanging out together. And I wonder if he switched that around or interposed that scene and then did the rest in flashback or, or however that works to emphasize the fact that this is his judgment on Gatsby. Now look what happens. Hmm. And if we're supposed to 
as as viewers of the film, think a little bit more critically about it than just taking Caraway's word. Ah, I see what you mean. I think there are a couple other ways in which what we see on screen in Lerman's film is kind of divorced from some of the other, like some of the critical elements where he's asking us to think. For example, the love story between Daisy and Gatsby Mm, is mm -hmm. played really straight. She is a much deeper character, I would argue, than she's in the book. Yeah, Uh, we're told like it's kind of it's a tragic love story, and that's Lerman's favorite thing to do. Yep, but. The entirety of the time that this straight love story is happening, to the point of being annoying, the song in the background is over and over again, will you still love me when I'm no longer young and beautiful? Just asking us that question over and over and over again. And so the question is kind of, it, it doesn't quite fit the tone of the story we're being told, which makes like that feels intentional in some way. Huh. Well, there's definitely more going on in the Lerman version than just the script and the acting, because the way that he shoots the movie and the sets and the costumes and the soundtrack are as well, much a statement of his interpretation as anything else. Well, I think so, too. And I th- and that's one of the other main issues, I think, that distinguish the two movies. And I think against my what I thought would have been my instinct, I think, make me prefer the 2013 version. And I, I call it the issue of anachronism. And that what I mean by that is that. Clayton in 1974 took the story and said, this story is set in 1922 and we're going to play it in 1922. And we're going to, all the, the music is going to come from the twenties. All of the, obviously the costume and the stage are going to, going to come from the twenties and it is going to be a look back. And this is an aspect of the literal fidelity that I think Clayton was going for, but it doesn't, it's, it's lost in the jazz age a little bit. Mm-hmm. And all of the, you know, the portrayal of decadence, the portrayal of excess is historical looking. The, right down to the music choice of what'll I do? Uh, who is it? Let me look it up here real quick. Look it up. Who is it? I wish we had a producer. What'll hey, look that I up, do? <laughs> Over and over, <laughs> what'll I do? Again. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, the theme song of the movie is, is an old jazz standard. And so you, it's not as relatable as mm-hmm. Boz Lerman, who starts from the beginning saying, let's blur the lines between the twenties and today. Let's make a, let's give a nod to yeah. universal application. And let's do what the Shakespeare directors do and set this thing in the, in East LA or something like that. And so you get the, you get Jay Z from the top, right? Mm-hmm. Doing from the church top. in the wild. And you get Lana Del Rey, as Emily mentioned over and over mm-hmm. again, but still it's, it's, there's as much hip hop as there is jazz, right? Right. Oh, yeah. In fact, the foundation of the soundtrack is jazz and then it bleeds into hip hop in almost every scene. Yep. Mm-hmm. Even when there's, even when there's jazz, It's anachronistic. One reviewer that I read pointed out, kind of looking down his nose, that Rhapsody in Blue by George Gershwin is two years early. (laughs) (laughs) A movie set in 1922 did not have Gershwin in it yet. That is so silly. (laughs) Isn't that funny? But but that's really funny. The reviewer gave you know gave Lerman credit for doing the anachronism on purpose. Right. Right. So I don't know. I, I think maybe the I think maybe the anachronism was effective because. What we what we all say about Gatsby is maybe it's not universal. Maybe Gatsby's not going to be relevant five hundred years from now, but it is relevant a hundred years later. And so the 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 idea of the Gatsby problem 
is relevant in the hip hop age, just like it was in the jazz age. And so I think putting hip hop in there was appropriate. Yeah, no, I agree with you. My favorite part. That's my favorite part. It's the hook for me is the soundtrack. And, and it, your comments are making me think now that I actually think it might be more applicable now than it was in when it was written because it's prophetic. He, he's looking at the seed. Fitzgerald's looking at the seeds of some societal issues that are only going to get more prevalent and are at their, at their absolute peak of prevalence right now. If what we're talking about is the individual becoming convinced that they can actually write their own story and by force of will, regardless of the rules, make it happen. And if that story is associated with two things, wealth and sex, that's 2022, right. much less 2013. I mean, it's, um, it is more, as relevant or more so right now. And for him to say, by the way, the culture, the element of our culture that I'm going to pull out to draw your attention to that is rap music and R&B, which is currently the richest genre of, of performance music in the world. I mean, it's, I think it was a kind of a coup on Lerman's part. That's brilliant. Well, he doesn't get, he doesn't get reamed for the anachronism quite as much because anachronism, I think the argument for the the place of that anachronism is a pretty good one. He doesn't get reamed for that as much as he gets reamed for production value and the over the top beyond gorgeousness into sordid, I don't know the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Of the, of the sets and the. Uh, oh no, the, that's the literally the point. <laughs> yeah, well, I thought that was in keeping with the novel. That's very um, much the Roaring Twenties theme I, because it's there's all kinds of there's all kinds of criticism about how it's self indulgent and it's um, so it doesn't line me. up with <laughs> it doesn't line up with any of the of the of the characters themselves. Although I didn't really, I actually was, was compelled. I was moved by all of that. I was too. Me um, too. Well, it was a, just a spectacle designed to draw uh, as many people as he could so that she might be among them. Right? Yeah. The opulence fits. Yeah. I think. I, think I mean, so. he, that's what the novel said is he threw these completely over the top opulent parties. Are they trying to say, I haven't read these reviews, dad, but are they trying to say that he wants to make a gritty movie and he wants to make a Vaseline smeared all over the screen beautiful movie and you can't do both choose Lerman a little bit. He's, he's saying that, that it's trying to be both spectacle external show and mm-hmm. inner dialogue. And I read okay. one review that said, Oh yeah, the, uh, the, the over the top first half of the movie gives way to this darker, more introspective second half. Like that's a criticism. I think it's exactly what happens. <laughs> it's the point, <laughs> which is great. Even well done. You've stated the obvious. <laughs> narrates over that transition and says, just like that, he turned it off like a light switch. Once Daisy yeah. came, he turned off the parties and they were where they were alone. Dude, that scene of the house with the lights going off one by one yes. was awesome. Oh, also, the way he treats the green light is just fantastic. Oh, my gosh. We have to talk about the green light. So so um, <laughs> Robert Redford stands with his back to the camera and uh, in a in a uh, double breasted suit. And he just looks debonair as all get out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of in silhouette. And he's looking off towards the sunset. And there's the green light across the bay. And I wish I could do this on camera. He slowly and almost imperceptibly, his right hand comes up like this. Not very hard, not even much past his waist. And then his fingers close and then drops back down. And it's calm. It makes you laugh out loud. <laughs> if you've never read the novel, you think, no, 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 no. Not this like is supposed that. to be emotional, yeah. dude. Yeah. This is supposed to be a big deal. Yeah. It's like he's reaching for a martini. 
And, and then he just, he just sort of James Bond changes his mind great and Gatsby. puts his hand back down. You're like, oh no, what's oh, going to happen for the rest of this movie? Gosh. Uh, Ian critiqued Leo for not using both hands and like he's because he's supposed to be like worshiping. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, and they I both think, took yeah. it off the book a little bit. I think because Leo did, played it down, too, but not as bad as Robert. Not as bad as <laughs> no. I, so a criticism that I have heard from a dear friend of mine who shall remain nameless mm. is that the, he overdid the green light, not in the way that he shot it, but in how many times he cut back to it over the course oh, of the man, movie. That's the point. He thought that was heavy handed. <laughs> and I thinking about it might agree a little bit. I don't know that you needed, I don't remember how many, I should have gone back and counted. 42 instances of the green light. Six or eight shots of the green light. Two might've been plenty. No, I don't think so. I think we're going to title this episode criticism. That's the point. (laughs) 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 Yeah. I don't know if you can oversell the whole point. I think I loved how many times it came up, particularly because it gave that scene punch where Daisy is Daisy and Gatsby are together again. They're in a pile of his shirts because he's been throwing them around the room like they're nothing. And she's crying and he is comforting her and looking out the window where he tells her in the evening, you can see the green light and the the overdub or whatever it is. Nick Carraway's voice over the top of the scene says he knew in that moment that his count of magical objects Mm -hmm. had decreased by one. Yeah. Or it says something like, I wonder if he knew in that moment. And he's looking out the window with that fierce gaze. And I think you wouldn't have, I don't think it would have landed as well had he not just talked about the green light again. And you were thinking to yourself, what the heck? Why are you on about this? We're supposed to be thinking that. Yeah, that's a good point. I actually remember watching that scene and I can't remember which one it is now. This would be way better if I did. But in the book, it says he did. Mm-hmm. He he knew that his count of enchanted objects had diminished by one. Right. And in the movie, they flip it and say he might have. Or I wonder, I wonder if he if. did. Yeah. Uh, and it's one. It's one or the other. Either Fitzgerald said I wonder, or Lerman said I wonder. But it's different. Mm. They rephrase that. Um, and I thought that was kind of well. Again, it it's an interpretive the, the scene narrator yeah, versus choice. protagonist choice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because who needs the symbol when you've got the reality? Yeah. Is that the idea? The the problem. Another problem I had with this particular version is. That they, I think they really did. You mentioned that they made Daisy a much more thinking person, um, a deeper, more three-dimensional character. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a true reading of the story. And I couldn't buy her leaving at the end once Lerman had gotten his hands on her and made her deep. I agree. That's a really good that's point. That's my main criticism mm-hmm. with the movie, yeah. that he tried to make her sympathetic, and then he he dropped her character and didn't explain the most horrifying thing that she did right yes. yep. how can that we sympathize with that it's like he said i think i wrote myself into a corner i'll just have her leave now yeah yeah i i think part one of the main one of the main takeaways from the story is that it's, that's so tragic about gatsby's he doesn't realize that he's too good for daisy buchanan right. and in, unless she's unless she's not worth it, it the thing doesn't work mm-hmm. and yeah. i think carrie yeah. mulligan's character is too worth it. Almost sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and part of the reason for that is that she, they, they, he, and I think this is added. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but she gets his letter on the eve of her wedding. And it's, and that's where all the tragedy comes from, right? It was too late. It was too late. Oh no. Right. Instead of getting sick and tired of waiting for a rich right. guy and marrying the next one that comes along. Right. Right. Knowingly abandoning him. Yeah. 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 That's, you're right. It's a flaw. It's definitely a flaw. 
so, and by contrast, uh, I, why can't I remember the name? It's not coming to me. Mia Farrow. Oh yeah. Mia Farrow's Daisy Buchanan is as shallow as can possibly be. Mm-hmm. Uh, even her voice, her tone of voice is, is flat and cloying and, you know, obviously Mia Farrow. She's a, a real Jordan Baker of a character. She's an actor <laughs> with chops. She could have done it anyway. And right. they, right. they did it in a way that in context of this conversation was maybe more effective. But it can't, yeah. it couldn't overcome, overcome the fact that everybody in the 1974 version was a, was an external, an external set of actions and words rather than a, a living, breathing character that the, the, the actors were somehow communicating to you. So do you think the morality tale that Fitzgerald was truly giving us through the story frame and all of that is lost in the Lerman film? That's a great question. That's a great question. What do you guys think? I, this is the point that Ian and I kind of tussled we've, we've about. We've debated this. <laughs> I think that he, like, in spite of the fact that he reads Daisy perhaps too deep, in spite of the fact that he may not portray Nick Carraway correctly, I think that the character he does get absolutely right all the way down to the bottom is Gatsby. And despite the fact that Nick's kind of final word on him is you're worth the rest of the bunch, we can see... Gatsby making his decisions and it's drawn to our attention that he really kind of his his, it's not good enough to just have Daisy he has to up the ante yeah yeah we know that he's lost one of his enchanted objects now he's got to go out and make sure that she'd never loved anyone else and we see him kind of building up this perfected story and kind of crushing people in his wake as he does it and I think that that we get that whole story arc in a way that does communicate the point of Gatsby's character. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree with that. By contrast, you don't know anything about Gatsby at the end of, of Redford's version other than, other than what Nick tells us. Nick's opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I'm willing to be persuaded by that. My initial read on the Lerman film after rewatching it here was, I don't, I think you, you pulled a punch a little bit in having Gatsby come out as a, tr- as a, Tragic figure. You can be a tragic figure in a bunch of different ways. You can be a tragic figure by being a good guy who who had a got a bad situation, or you could be a tragic figure by being a guy who whose heart and head ran away with him. And and it's a cautionary tale in that sense. And I think Fitzgerald sort of leans towards the cautionary tale, I do too. particularly given how unfaithful Nick Carraway is as a narrator. But this conversation makes me think that my problem with the Lerman movie has more to do with Tobey Maguire than it does with Leo DiCaprio and Baz Luhrmann. I agree, because because of one scene in particular that struck me this time watching through. There's a scene where uh, one of the big parties has ended. It's the party where Daisy actually comes. Mm-hmm. It's huge, huge bacchanal, just like usual. And you watch the last car drive away, and the gates close. And on the gates, there's this Latin phrase that means always faithful, or faithful to the end, I think is actually how it's translated. And in front of the gate, with those words in the background, the characters who were not supposed to have noticed the, the the remnants of what Gatsby actually does for a living, the bootleggers and things, are being beat up violently in front yeah. of the gates. And you see that, and the scene hovers there for a moment, enough that it's imprinted on your mind that where yeah. all this came from is is seedy he's underbelly. A it's, it's He's Violence. a criminal. And the reason for it is there on the gates, but it's almost like to ask you a question, does that make it okay that he is the way he is? Is this justification enough, faithful to the end, that seems really hollow? 
Beautiful. Well, you got to ask faithful to what? Yeah. I, yeah. I, because I like once that. that line that, that Lerman keeps in that you guys keep going back to about the objects being diminished by one, the magical objects being diminished by one, the word object is really important there. Yeah, yeah. It sure is. Right. Because I question the love story element. I, oh, absolutely. Uh, he oh, yeah. was I think not we're in love to. with Daisy. He was, you know, objectifying her and equating her with money and thus the envy and well, the demands with himself, that she with would With the vision say, of himself. Yeah, absolutely. It's all rooted in his own self-image and identity issues, you know. Yeah. But even so, he, he's demanding that she say she never loved her husband and that she never loved anybody but and him. And then take up residence across the, the water from her husband. Right. We will stay right here. We will live across the water so that he can look at you with me all day long every day. Right. Yeah. It's just about envy. I don't know. I don't know. What am I saying? What am I saying? That maybe he didn't dismiss the morality tale because he kept that line in. I hope you were paying attention because it went by pretty fast. (laughs) Well, I don't think that um, the great Gatsby would still be around if all it was is a cautionary morality tale. I think it's deeper than that. I mean, the only only morality tales that have stuck around that long are Aesop's fables. Yeah. It's a novel, right? And so there's some subtlety there that I think Lerman absolutely captures. The thing that amazes me is that he managed managed to avoid punching his viewer in the mouth when his viewer is Gatsby. In our in our day and age and in modern America, the viewer is Gatsby. We are given to exactly the things Gatsby is. And you could say that about any human from, from any period of time, except you could particularly say it about us. <laughs> and I think maybe he had to, in some ways, soften the punch so that we'd keep watching all the way to the end. And I think Megan's right. I think that scene with Always Faithful as the reason for Gatsby's actions does pose us a question. Yeah, faithful to what? Faithful to Daisy or faithful to Well, and what to you're money? faithful to is yourself. That's faithful, what he's faithful to is well, himself. Well, yeah, faithful to yourself. It coupled with that that iconic scene where he says, you can't rewrite the past. Of course you can. Yep. Of course you can. Of course you can. That, of course you can. But why would you? Because you are rewriting your own narrative in service to your own hymn of glory. At faithful to the end to your own self-image. I mean, that's despicable. Yeah. Well, and I think in in contrast to the novel, I mean, I think the novel crit- critiques the culture broadly of the Roaring Twenties beautifully, but Lerman seems to emphasize Gatsby's fatal flaw of individualism and and the notion that he's the captain of his own fate, maybe more so than Fitzgerald does. I mean, I think Fitzgerald's actually concerned with drunkenness and and wanton sexuality. Like those are some of the things he's actually writing about, and and Lerman sort of takes those as a given. And focuses instead on this rabid pursuit of self-image and glory. What do you guys think about that? I think maybe there's something to that, except except in Fitzgerald's defense, he closes his novel with the greatest sentence in American <laughs> literature. Good point. That speaks to that second thing, right? So we beat on boats against the current, drawn back ceaselessly into the past. The The plan, the project of self-creation and narcissism yeah. is Bankrupt. doomed. Yeah. Right, mm. but you guys will not believe this. Clayton leaves it out. What? <gasps> Serious? In no. 1974, the movie ends some other way. What? Wow. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a miss, so, buddy. So by def- <laughs> by by contrast, Lerman gets it at least to a degree because he gives us that. That last line, right? He even he puts it up on the screen, sweet right? Toby we Maguire see Toby Maguire's typewriter or like his words on the so screen. So cool. He writes it. 
Guys, that is as dumb <laughs> as the recent the recent film The King, starring Timothy Chalamet as Henry V, in which the director and writer rewrote the Saint the Saint Crispin's Day speech. What? Okay, all right. For what possible he gives reason? A speech. He pauses, he addresses the troops, he gives a speech that is supposed to be enthralling, and he doesn't use Shakespeare. You're right. That was a well, mess. We could hardly. That's that level of dumb. I have other reasons I to like that movie. I do too. I do too. I thought it was great. Yes. But that's a dumb thing to do. We said it at the time. You said it at the time. I did not say it at the time. That was your father that said it at the time. <laughs> I did. You would have to include. Yeah, it's a whole bibliophile episode. Boats in the Boats Against our, the Current is the first that we really <laughs> talked about. That is fantastic. You said it on recording. I think, that's a, I think that's a silly thing to do. I can't believe he didn't end with that line. <laughs> that's... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that ought to be the most important part. Write it backwards from there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Just> work backwards. <laughs> oh, so anyway, goodness. what I think is that um, this is kind of what I what I came away from. I have to rethink my underlying assumption that I've gone into the whole subject of cinematic treatments of literature with, which is the more faithful to the text, the better the movie. I don't know that that's true in this case. But I, I came away thinking instead, the more faithful to the theme of the movie, the better. Yeah. And uh, I think the Lerman version is more faithful to the themes of the movie or the themes of the novel yeah. than the other. If you're also looking for long swaths of the text to be read aloud, I don't think you're disappointed by the Baz Luhrmann version. I mean, there were a couple different times last night as I was rewatching that I thought, wow, Nick Garraway gets a lot of airtime just reading this plot <laughs> yeah, out right. loud. You know, right? Yeah. Only by comparison is right. Lerman not as textually faithful because yeah, this other one sure. was the great long <laughs> with no action happening on screen. I actually stopped right. halfway through. I tried to watch that movie and I could not do it. I knew that the this 74 was, one. Yes, I knew it was iconic and it was Robert Redford. He's eye candy. I mean, of course, I'll watch it. I could not. I turned it off. I was so bored. Wow. I know. My goodness, you guys. <laughs> I like that point. I think that makes a ton of sense that the real the real issue involved is is faithfulness to the to the heart of the story, to the theme of the story. And I like the impulse from Baz Luhrmann to apply to apply that story to his own viewers. And it really it really does seem like he's sidling up next to Fitzgerald and saying, hey, man, I get you. Give me the mic. I also think that he did a great job of saying, oh, yes, this is the story that I as a director need to tell. Like he was the director for that for that story yes you mean the the boss boss over the top lerman yes yeah well yeah yeah, his style right you can trace his style in his movies and it's absolutely appropriate for it's always working up towards gatsby yeah agreed what a great movie you guys that was so fun i love this i love this so much we're gonna do more of this we're gonna (laughs) do it again in about a week and we can't wait to to bring you yet another episode in the meantime See if you can sit through the 1974 version. It doesn't sound like any of us really could. And go enjoy Baz Luhrmann's Great Gatsby because it is quite the treat. Mm-hmm. Thank you as always for joining us. And we'll see you next time around on Bibliophiles. Happy reading. Happy, Happy reading, reading, Happy reading. Thank you for listening to the show. We hope you'll stop by the Bibliophiles Facebook group and let us know what you think is important about adapting books to film. 
By the way, the school year may be getting started over at Center for Lit's Online Academy, but there's still time to get your 5th through 12th grade students involved in a year of engaging Socratic discussions, much like this one, about all kinds of great literature. Our American Lit class actually tackles The Great Gatsby and goes further into many of the issues we were only able to scratch the surface of today. Visit the link in the show notes to learn more. Next week, we'll be discussing a beloved literary cinematic masterpiece, To Kill a Mockingbird. Until then, happy reading, everyone.